G'day, welcome back to the podcast. Darren Mitchell here with another absolutely ripping interview about to come your way. Today I'm speaking with Graham Hawkins, the founder and CEO of Sales Tribe. He's also a best-selling author and a LinkedIn top voice. But above all that, he's a really, really good bloke. Long, long history in sales and sales leadership. He and I go back quite a while, and this particular episode has been two years in the making based on our fairly hectic schedules, but it's uh, good things always come to those who are patient, and it's fantastic to be able to get to speak to him, uh, which I did this morning, which was uh, fantastic. So if you're wanting to know more about sales and sales leadership, and particularly becoming more exceptional in a more biocentric world, then Graham is your man. So plug into this podcast, listen to it a number of times, but also be sure to connect with Graham either on LinkedIn or via his website if you want to know more about what Sales Tribe does. So without further ado, let's get into what is a phenomenal, phenomenal episode. Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Alrighty, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. And uh, I must say, this is two years, or probably more than two years in the making. It's an absolute privilege to have Mr. Graham Hawkins on the podcast. Two years in the making, my friend. How are you? Thanks for having me, Darren. Yeah, look, um, I'm great, thank you. And yeah, really good to be here. We've been waxing lyrical for a while, you and I, and it's good to be finally here. You are absolutely. And uh, Graham, for people who, who don't know you, which is probably not many, because if if you're in sales and sales leadership, you would have seen Graham all over LinkedIn because he is a LinkedIn top voice. Very, very proud. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Listen, the um the the LinkedIn thing early days um for me was was a real eye opener. Um, Darren, I literally thought I was late to the party back in 2016 when I first started publishing content on LinkedIn. Yeah. I thought, oh, everyone's doing this, so I'm just, you know, another voice. But turns out everyone wasn't doing it back then. And and I've been um pretty consistent in my my sort of publishing of content and getting my voice out there and just being seen, I guess, creating visibility and yeah, what it's done for me and, and the business is just, it's phenomenal. You know, we're, we're part of the global digital connected economies now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Absolutely. And as the CEO and founder of Sales Tribe, that's exactly what you do. Um, it was actually interesting you talking about that because uh, I was listening to somebody last week talking about this concept of the LinkedIn lurker. And um, and the people that are on LinkedIn, there's I mean, every pretty much every decision maker on the planet is in LinkedIn in some form, but very few people actually regularly publish content and a lot of people actually just watch you. In in fact, they lurk. <laughs> they don't necessarily like or comment, um, but but you're they're watching you. They're watching your every move. So 100%. something to be conscious of. You would have seen, as I did, um, the recent report published by Harvard Business Review. I think they surveyed about 2,000 B2B business buyers. So they went out to buyers. And 82% of them said that the winning vendor's social content had a significant impact on decision-making. Yeah. The moment I saw that, it was like, okay, done deal. If you're not on LinkedIn and you're not visible, you don't exist. Absolutely. It's just, and it's nuts. And then you have people out there thinking, oh, it's okay if I if I post this to my TikTok account or to my Facebook account because nobody's going to see it. It's, um, it's just showing me being me. But the problem is, 
people are watching. People will do research. And you've spoken about this a lot, that before before people end up choosing a vendor or choosing somebody to talk to, they'll also do some research on you and, and in many cases, maybe even make a decision before they choose to engage you as to whether there's somebody you can do business with. 100%. They are what I call, Darren, they're down funnel. Yeah. They're already progressed in it. By the time they get to 60% of the decision-making process, they probably at that point, that point already selected their preferred vendor. Yeah. So if you're not visible at the beginning of the buyer journey, then you're not in the mix. Yeah. And you and I know from years of qualifying and, and being in sales, if you're coming in late, your chances of your probability of winning are very, very small back then. Yeah. You know, you talk about um, the percentage of people actually proactively publishing content on LinkedIn. We're over a billion active users on LinkedIn now. Mm. And still it's it's between one and two percent of people who actively or proactively publish content on any kind of regular basis. One percent. I mean, that's still a big number. It is. And it looks looks like LinkedIn's now cluttered with all sorts of stuff, but it's still a relatively small percentage of people who are actually putting themselves out there consistently. Yeah. And it's um, the law of consistency is something that cannot be underestimated because if I look at things like just podcasting, for example, right, there are millions and millions and millions of podcasts out there across all the different platforms. But an interesting statistic was something like under 10% of podcasts have actually been updated in the last 90 days. So the vast majority of podcasts either have very few episodes or uh, the ones that uh, haven't had episodes, they haven't done episodes in 90, the last 90 to 120 days. So if you're continuing to keep yourself front of mind, and of course it has to be good content because if it's crap content, people will turn off very, very quickly. You've got to, you've got to stay in, in, I guess, your buyer's minds, if nothing else, just to be uh, build awareness. 100%. And look, I, I talk about the three Cs, context, content, and consistency. Mm. Mate, you're living and breathing it. What are you up to, 650-something podcasts now? Or Oh, this will be you, – you and I will be 637. 637. Wow. Okay. Well, that, that's consistency right there. But you're right what you said there, Darren, about um, it's got to be good content. So here's one of the things that we train our clients at Sales Tribe is forget about this whole Gary V, you know, 60 posts a day nonsense, just spray and pray. The worst thing you can do on LinkedIn in particular is is be just constantly look at me, look at me, look at me, or you know, shouting and repeating yourself, as I like to say, because your hard-fought network soon starts to switch off. Yeah. And some of them now will be so sick of your message being on repeat all the time that they'll just either mute you or they'll remove you as a connection. And that, that's totally counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. And when you think about that in relation to how it relates to sales and how most, most inverted commas, organizations train their salespeople. It's all about the product. It's all about the service. It's all about them, right? And so what do they do? They lead with, hey, look at this fantastic widget. Look how good this is. Listen to me. I'm I'm an expert in this in this topic. You need to listen to me. People don't care. They don't care about your product. They don't care about your service. No, they don't. It's all changed. Um, you know, from when you and I first started selling, I'm 33 years into my career now. So when I first started selling, it was all about features, advantages, and benefits, and products, and, you know, out there doing the numbers game, sales by the numbers. Yeah. But now it's not so, what do I say? It's 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 solving, not selling. Yeah. Yeah. Solve and, problems. 
Yeah, and one of the key things to do there is to identify, are there problems in the marketplace that exist? Can you bring insights to that marketplace? And can you articulate a problem maybe better than a prospective customer can so that they will give you a level of attribution to you having possibly a solution to solve? But they've got to want to solve the problem. 100%. 100%. And, you know, the more you can bring data-driven insights into, you know, that 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 discussion where the buyer starts to see that you're bringing proof points, it's not just rhetoric, it's not just yeah. talk, Yeah, the better off you're going to be. Um, yeah, no, look, we're dealing with educated buyers now, Darren, and when buyers change how they buy, sellers have to change how they sell. Yes. So, you know, a lot of what we do and a lot of what you're doing with the Exceptional Sales Leader podcast is all about how do you adapt to all the change that's now happening? And, and frankly, I think it's the greatest time ever to be in sales. Yes, 100%. It's, there's so much opportunity and opportunity, you know, change represents opportunity. And I think if you can adapt quickly now, the, the opportunities are huge. You've just got to, you've got to be open-minded to change. Yeah, absolutely. And if you recognize that it's all about the buyer and it's all about the, the I guess, the strength and the education and I guess the balance of power to some degree that the buyer now has, if you recognize that and use that to your advantage, and I'm not saying manipulation, but if there's a if there's a service or a a problem you can solve that matches, I guess, the psyche of what the buyer's thinking about, what they're looking to achieve, then not only will you probably win the sale over everybody else that's trying to convince the buyer their product's got better features. You're actually going to be planting seeds for future opportunities because loyalty will go a long way when you're solving those particular problems. Yeah, correct. I'm um, I'm fortunate, mate, to be doing some work now with uh, the one and only Brent Adamson. And Brent often talks about the crisis of customer confidence. Yeah. And he talks about the fact that, um, you know, it's not about us convincing the buyer that we are the right supplier. It's about helping the buyer overcome their own internal problems in getting decisions made so you know the uh, the buying center now you know it's gone from what 5.4 people to 11.6 according to Gartner so yeah. now we're dealing with these bloated buying centers the cast of characters we've got to get across 11 or 12 or in some cases 15 20 people yeah how do you get all of them the buyers to reach consensus to agree on anything when they're coming from different departments with different agendas and different, you know, vested interests in who are risk averse now. They don't want to make a decision. No. We've gone from FOMO, according to Matt Dixon, FOMO to FOMU, fear of messing up. <laughs> so, you know, the salesperson has a lot of challenges now, right? They do. And look, back in the day, I remember sales, some of my salespeople uh, talking about how their relationships were so, um, so strong. But you're talking about the, you know, 11.6 people within an organization who are part of a decision-making process. And when I look back, some of those relationships were very, uh, let's just say, pointed, very one-dimensional. And we had, we maybe had a good relationship with a CIO or an IT manager or a finance director. But what we didn't get was the relationships that were internal to that organization and some of the key decision makers that would influence that buying decision that we weren't across. And I think we need to be, as you talked about, where buyers are a lot more educated, 
selling organizations and salespeople also need to be a lot more educated in terms of what are the buying decision-making processes that organizations go through um, so that we can tap into that. So there's a level of credibility there. Oh, massively. And listen, here's the other complication is half the time the buyers don't know. They don't know themselves. <laughs> they don't even know how their own business um, reaches consensus or a decision-making process because there's so many different moving parts inside their own business. Yeah. So, yeah, often we get stuck, don't we? And I'm guilty of this myself. You've got your champion or your sponsor and you've got a great relationship with that person and that person's saying all the right things and you're in the front, you know, the front position, you're in pole position, et cetera. Um, but unbeknownst to them, there's three other people with a different agenda who are already talking to one of your competitors. Yeah. And then you've got the CIO or the boss, the CEO, and he's got a friend who's working with another supplier. And there's a lot of stuff we just, we never have any control over or visibility into in sales. And you have to be mindful of that all the time. You do. And then you've got to contend with your own internal mechanisms where you've got a sales leader or a senior director who is at you, especially at this time of year, <laughs> to close the deal. Well, you know, funny you should say that. Just last week, we we're on a, um, a series of calls with one of our clients, a large multinational, and it's their end of financial year. December is their calendar year, financial year. And all the way through the last 12 months, we've been building this buyer-obsessed culture and, you know, customer-centric selling approach with them. Yeah. And so we get we get to the 11th hour, the final, the final part of the year, and they've kind of thrown everything we've been talking about out the window because now they've got numbers to close, right? And I said, I said to them, whoa, guys, whoa, stop. Um, it's all very well to have your numbers that you want to meet. That's a very self-serving, self-oriented view. You go out to your buyers now and you start showing them that your numbers are more important because it's your end of year. What message does that send? It's the wrong message, right? So the buyer all of a sudden thinks, oh, okay, so you're not really that fussed about my, my issues or my agenda. You're just wanting to get your deal across the line. It undermines the relationship big time. And you could undo all of that work that you've invested and they've invested. You could undo in one or two conversations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I like to say the relationship is built up in drips, but, yeah. it's, but it's lost in buckets. Yes, you know, so yeah, you go and do that now with a buyer and it, it can potentially destroy all the hard work you've done in, in building the credibility and the trust because you, you're demonstrating self-orientation. Now, I'd love to know the, uh, without give, giving away too much information, what was what was the response you got? <laughs> oh, normal response. Everyone nods their head and it sort of agrees, but, but, you know, commercial realities kick in and we do all have to hit our numbers. And I, I, I concede that. I said, look, I understand the position you've been in. I've been in that position my whole career, like end yeah. of quarter, end of month madness, and you know, let's drop our pants and discount by 25%. Darren, when I wrote my book, I interviewed buyers, and one of the buyers said some classic things to me. Um, Use a lot of colourful language, this guy, too. He said, Graham, <laughs> we, we know this particular head of procurement in a large bank here in Australia said, Graham, we know we just have to wait until the final Friday of the of the month, 5 p.m., we know that the the vendors are going to come along and, and drop their pants by 25% or whatever. Yeah. And we just wait until then and we get the best deal possible. 
So, so buyers know the game. And sadly, a lot of sales organizations still play that same old game and they they leave a lot of money on the table, Darren. They do. And it's, as you were talking there, it reminds me of the, um, and you, you might have read it, the um, Infinite Game by Simon Sinek that talks about this very fixed versus infinite difference in terms of mindset. And it is the classic example where you've got that uh, somewhat direct pressure and in many cases perceived pressure that the, the closer we get to the end of the month, end of the quarter, end of the financial year, as best as we can say we are customer-centric and we're buyer-centric and we're doing all this for the longevity of the relationship, at the end of the day, if we don't hit our number, we're in all sorts. And so the it, it kind of flips. And what and my own experience in, in corporate sales is, and I recorded a podcast late last uh, earlier last week about this, that the closer we got to the end of the quarter or the end of the financial year, the daily cadence reviews ended up being twice daily. And the expectation was, as a sales leader, my forecast in the morning needed to have a high degree of certainty that in the afternoon, what I forecast in the morning to close that day would have closed. And if it if it didn't, it was like, please explain, because it's all about you got to get the number. And I'm sitting there, and sometimes you look back and think, this was nuts, because the day after the end of the financial year, the customer is still the customer. They're still going to purchase, and yet we've now created an impression. We've taught them how to deal with us, yeah. and the balance yeah. of power now sits with, with them. them. It's yeah, just we, we, we've shown our desperation to hit our numbers, and you know, everyone that's in business knows the game, right? We are yeah. implicit, well, implicitly, we know that everybody's got numbers they need to meet and KPIs they need to, to meet, etc. But when you look at Meister and Green and the trust equation, I'm sure yeah. some of your listeners have read and looked at the trust equation. If you haven't, go and look at it. Yeah. So, you know, the simple formula is credibility, reliability, and intimacy uh, is the numerator. The denominator is self, uh, self-orientation. self Yes. So you're building up credibility. You're building up reliability and intimacy and ultimately trust. And all of that is undone the moment you demonstrate self-orientation. If you're, if you're all about you and your numbers, bang, there goes the trust. That's it. And as you say, that's in buckets, right? And that could be one transaction done because yeah. you've taught them, well, when it's all said and done, all the stuff you've been telling us, yeah. it means diddly. It's all words. It's not actions. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, look, it's a fine line to balance. Um, Darren, I'm, I'm always um, mindful of the fact that we are all in business. We all do have pressure to hit certain, you know, KPIs and numbers as we talked about, but you're undoing a lot of the hard work that your sales team has been building. Yes. Those relationships that you're cultivating, those long-term, you know, and against the backdrop now that everybody wants to be taken on the long-term journey. All of the buyers out there, they want partners, not suppliers. They want the long-term relationship. And yet, and yet we get in our own way. We, um, we ruin our own chance of having that long-term relationship because we're, demonstrating self-orientation. Totally. Now, interesting point about that. I remember I used to have um, Schweppes as one of my accounts back in the days. And um, talking about the long-term, we'd taken them on a journey. We had a great long-term partnership. And I love your thought on this because if you build a trusted partnership where it's genuine value that's delivered to both parties, 
when things like the end of the financial year happen, there's a bit of there's a bit of I guess um, money in the bank that you may be able to draw upon based on that relationship. So it's not desperation, but there may be some favors you might be able to call call on based on that relationship for them to help you out in a certain predicament. Now it's not necessarily self orientation specifically, but if you've got that trusted relationship, there's no reason why you can't say, hey, um, is there any way we can bring this forward into this financial year? Because we need to get this through, but we know that there's going to be um, uh, reciprocal sort of situations where we'll help each other out along that journey. But it's not that transactional quarter to quarter financial year approach. It is the long game. Play the long game. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I love the HubSpot mentality, Darren, that you know Brian Halligan often talks about create value before you try to extract value. Mm. So if you've done a whole lot of create value, create value, and you've, you know, in effect, you've sort of got some some credits in the bank, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You're entitled then to say, hey, listen, I know we're on this long-term journey together. Really appreciate it if, you know, there was some way that you could make this happen for us. And, you know, there'll be there'll be swings and roundabouts and, you know, it'll come back to you at some point. So yeah. the quid pro quo thing is is real, but you've got to have established that trust and relationship to begin with. Yes. And it starts with giving. It starts with, as you say, creating creating value. And I say to leaders all the time, it is not about you, never has been and never will be. It is about what you can do to serve your team. And that's when I say serving your team, it's not doing things for them to the point where they are completely dependent upon you, but you're there to serve them, to help them, to drive value, to give. And when yeah. you give... The law of reciprocation will always say, you know what, at some point you'll be taken care of. You won't necessarily get it directly from the people you're giving to, but it will come back because yeah. you're creating that value. It's not starting with what can you give me and based on you giving me something, then I'll give you something back. No, no, that's a transaction. It's interesting talking with you, mate, about leadership because we all agree buying has changed mm. and naturally as a consequence, selling has changed. But what about sales leadership? Because I'm not seeing the same required changes in the leadership approach with a lot of guys. They're still doing, a lot of leaders are still doing sales by the numbers. Yes. And do we know why? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my view, my experience is, um, and it's a generalization, but in many cases, the sales leader was such a great salesperson as an individual contributor. The businesses looked at Graham and said, Graham, you're an extraordinary salesperson. And I reckon if we give you the responsibility of leadership, you'll be able to teach your team to be as extraordinary as you, which means the organization is going to be in very good hands. Yep. The only problem was, is that you don't necessarily have the skill set or the knowledge to make the transition because you're a very good salesperson who loves the hunt. Yep. <laughs> as soon as you become a sales leader with responsibility of five or 10 salespeople, where you're supposed to be stepping back and enabling them, you get involved and disintermediate your team. So what do you know? You actually start being the super sales person for, for five or 10 people and you tell the customers, well, if you want anything done, come to me. Darren, you and I first came across each other as 19-year-olds playing sport, right? And the sporting analogies are often overused in business, but they are clear here. What you're yeah. saying is... Just because you're a great player doesn't mean you're going to be a great coach. That's it. And in fact, the best coaches of sporting teams are often not the best players. Um, and yet we do that in sales. As you say, we, we promote the the star performer because they want to see a, a career pathway as well. 
but we promote the best performer. We mm. make them the leader. And we think magically without any training or coaching, that person's going to be a great leader. And it's not yes. the way. It's not. And to keep that that sporting analogy, you just have to look at the AFL probably over the last maybe 15, probably more so in the last 10 years. Yep. You hear a lot of the, the top coaches now talk about people management or man management and not saying it's just a male-dominated sport because we've got the AFLW now, but yep. it's all about people management. And you now hear coaches talk about the fact, you know what, the best way for me to get the, the performance out of my team is to adjust the way I interact with each of my team members yeah. Because they're all different, right? I can't, I can't use the Ron Barassi fire and brimstone approach that might have worked in the nineteen seventies and eighties. It yeah. doesn't work in the twenty twenties. It doesn't. And when you look at, like, continuing the analogy around AFL, if you look at some of the greatest coaches of all time, certainly in terms of games coach, Kevin Sheedy, Mick Malthouse, back pocket battlers, right? Yes. Um, but you're right. The 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 shift from command and control style sales leadership to yeah. what is now, and I think this is the way forward, is that servant leadership. Yes. So you're you're there to serve your team. You're not there to, you know, um, direct them and, and be that sort of autocratic leader that we we both grew up with. Yeah. Now you're there just to help facilitate the culture. That's it. And it's interesting you say the servant leadership because that's something I'm really big on when I'm when I'm working with sales teams in particular and sales leaders. And a lot of people, when I say, what do you think of servant leadership? They say, oh, that sounds really weak. It sounds you're, you're almost subservient to the team. And I say, well, it's anything but. What it is, is you're there to enable your team. You're not there to do things for your team. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't be having the really challenging conversations and it won't mean you'll be giving them a good smack around the head if they need it, metaphorically, of course, right? But because you've built that level of trust, because innately you're there to serve them and help them because it's all about them, you actually build a deeper uh, level of trust to the point where when you do say something, they stand up and they listen. We've got a client at the moment, to your point. We've got a client where we assess their entire organisation um, in terms of uh, you know, demographics, age. Uh, 1,600 salespeople around the world, this company. Yeah. 79% of them fall within Gen Y and Gen Z, so millennials. Wow. 79%. So these senior leaders that we're working with, these sales leaders, are managing millennials. Yeah. And that's just going to increase that number, right? So I had the same discussion. You know, servant leadership, it sounds weak. It sounds like it's it's the way that modern, younger generations want to be managed. They want to be coached. Yes. They want to be included in the conversation, you know, participative inclusion, all of that stuff's critically important for big companies now or and yeah. little companies too. Absolutely. Because if the sales leader doesn't do that, then you'll find that there'll be a high level of attrition. <laughs> That's what we're still seeing, right? 16.8 yeah. months is the average sales tenure. Yeah. And I think the ramp time is still on average seven months. So you mm. go out to the recruiters, you find these millennials, you bring them into the business, you spend seven months onboarding, investing in them, training them, yeah. and they're gone within 16.8 months. Why are they gone? Because they don't get along with the management style. Which is culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and we know that the management style is almost like a carbon copy of the management style that would preceded them. So I often say to people that we tend to, many people get to, tend to get promoted to a higher level of incompetence because in some cases it's the blind leading the blind. So 
I've got a sales leader who is very much driven by the numbers and the metrics and all about this. Don't care what you do, just get the number, whatever it takes. They've been brought into an organization because the culture that they lived in and operated in was dog eat dog, internal competition, get get the stuff done, don't care what it, and and we wonder why we have these cultures that are very, very, very difficult to change. But it only takes one person. It only takes one person to say, hang on, yes, we know the numbers are okay. We know the numbers are important. We that's the scoreboard. Yeah. But if we take a step back and say, let's just set goals that are really, really big, but Let's look at what the fundamental behaviors are. What is the game plan we have to put in place? What are the things we have to do on a daily basis that if we were exceptional at doing those, that number take care of itself, right? Correct. That's Correct. it. I keep saying your your own numbers will take care of themselves if you just do the right things. In fact, it was Mahan Karsla that said it in that great book. He wrote a book called Let's Get Real or Let, Let's Not Play. And the key quote from that book, I often use it, is, when your numbers are really important, just focus on your your customers' numbers, and your numbers will take care of themselves. Yeah, which is it's a, it's a mindset shift, isn't it? Yes, it's biocentricity. So if you think about okay, what is because a lot of people go out and they'll try to they'll try to sell a product or a widget or a service, thinking we've got the best of breed, and we try to retrofit into what we think is a perceived need that the customer might have, but we end up projecting onto that particular buyer, that particular customer. Versus taking a step back and saying, you know what, before I talk about anything about a possible product, solution, service, let me understand what is going on in your business. What needs to be fixed? Is there anything that needs to be fixed? And if there is, maybe, I don't know, maybe I might have a solution. Maybe I won't. Yeah. I often say to sales teams, if you could go out for the next week and you can have conversations with your customers, how many of you could refrain from talking about your product. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And this goes back to qualifying kind of 101, isn't it? It's all about uh, seek first to understand before you're understood. Yeah. Gather up as much information as you can. Um, Darren, one of, the, one of the best opening questions I like to ask is, um, you know, imagine you've just sat down with a customer either on Teams or you're, you know, you're in front of them and you say, look, um, Words to the effect of, listen, um, you know, thanks for your time, Darren. Assuming um, we work out that there's an opportunity for us to collaborate on something together, do you mind if I just ask, what what does an exceptional experience look like for you when you're working with your suppliers? Because yeah. we would like to try and replicate that and, and adapt the way we engage. In talking with other customers like you, we see that buyers like to the you know to engage in a certain way so i'd love to get your sense of what what an exceptional experience looks like yeah and just get that out on the table get the buyer thinking about you know we, we want a, a seamless um simple easy engagement that's enjoyable for both parties and if you can have that discussion up front that sort of sets the tone a little bit it does and also i guess sets the framework to keep each other accountable that should either of us go off track we can remind ourselves about what we what we agreed. The other yeah. thing I love about that is you're getting the customer or the buyer to talk about what's important to them, and none of that is about you. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You're almost you're almost doing that co-created close plan. You know, you get to a certain stage of the sales cycle where you say, "All right, well, let's we've agreed that you've got a problem. We've you know we've identified and, and quantified the size of the problem." We know that you can't ignore this problem, Mr. Buyer, so we're going to have to do something, right? Yep, yep. right, okay. 
Right. Well, let's work on a closed plan together so that we know what are the milestones that we need to hit before we get to that point where, you know, mm. we can look at each other and say, yeah, problem solved. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you're almost starting that conversation about the closed plan. Mm. And as you do that, guess what? There's little mini closes throughout because if you do that well, there's mutual benefit there. There's mutual value. The, the likelihood is they're going to stick with you. You're seen immediately as the trusted advisor. That's that's, that's, right. that's the way I looked at it. It's a bit like um, I'm putting aside product, I'm putting aside dollars, I'm putting aside all that stuff. I want to talk to you about how do we make this, how do we build the foundation for this long-term partnership? Yeah, that's it. And just by doing that, if you think about the vast majority of organizations out there that are all trying to hit numbers by the end of this financial year, they're all, well, I say most, maybe there's a percentage, Let's just say Pareto, 80% are saying, hey, we need to get our numbers hit. Let's let's discount. Let's do a, a fire sale. Let's just do whatever we have to do to, to get the numbers in, which is all about them. The organization that can completely flip that and make it all about the buyer and how the buyer wants to buy, what is the exceptional experience? What's the, the great experience they're looking for? All of a sudden in the buyer's mind, they're saying there's something different about this person or this organization that really resonates with me you now differentiate yourself. Yeah. There's a, there's a gentleman you should interview for your podcast. Um, his name's Mark McAuliffe. And uh, Mark and I are talking about writing a book together at the moment. Mark's just finishing up a PhD in all the stuff we're talking about. So he's, yep. he's done a lot of research. He's a sales leader and a very experienced sales leader. And he's done a lot of research to, uh, to sort of build out his thinking around all of this. And um yeah, he's, he's going to be uh, interesting to bring some sort of research and some academia into this discussion. But, yeah, going back to what you were saying, um, the putting the customer first and, you know, the the understanding of, of their problem. I often say the number one objective in business for everybody, regardless of product, segment, industry, is to create raving fans. Yes. Why? Well, put simply, Raving fans not only repeat purchase, they not only stay with you longer, these are the people who tell others about how great it is to deal with you guys. And that's yes. the holy grail, right? Yes. So if if all we ever did in business was just focus on creating raving fans, truly delighted, happy customers, you're going to have a successful business despite yourself, right? <laughs> and it doesn't it sound so logical? It sort of does, but Mark, Mark will be able to give you some really interesting um, academia to support all of this because he studied this stuff too. Love it, love it. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, that just sounds. I can imagine sitting, getting a sales team sitting in front of their customers, saying, "Yeah, we want to drive, drive mutual beneficial value and all this sort of stuff and all these great buzzwords." But then, at the slightest amount of pressure that's being shown, and it could, and this is the other challenge, right? You've got the people within the organization that are looking at the numbers and saying, "Oh." We're behind. We need to drive our profitability. So all the stuff comes down. Yeah. It's, it's almost these guys are sight unseen. They just say, deliver the number. All this other stuff, it's nice to have. Yeah, we'll have great cultures and great relationships. Our MPS might be great. But at the end of the day, if we're not delivering the numbers, all this other stuff is secondary. Darren, I've got a classic story in my career where, where I actually stood firm. I had a, a sales leader. I was a sales guy working in a technology company had a big deal that I'd been working for 12 months. So it was a it was a big one. And I could see it wasn't going to get closed before the end of the financial year. 
Yeah. I could, you know, the, my sponsor was telling me, look, you know, there's a number of things that need to be in place before we can pull the trigger. So I, I'd kind of already put it into next year, right? Yeah. And then I had the end of the year pressure come down from the top at the senior boss, talk to my boss and say, you got to bring that deal forward. Do anything you can to bring that deal forward. I said, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Not going to the buyer and undermining the relationship and my reputation, personal reputation, to just try and bring the deal forward, no matter how big the discount. Yes. Anyway, they kept they kept pushing me, kept pushing me. You've got to bring that deal forward. We need it for the numbers, blah, blah, blah. It pretty soon became obvious they needed it for their own bonus. But surprise, <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, isn't it? Same old story. Anyway, put that aside. I said, no, I'm not doing it. And I don't want to do it. It's just gonna, it's gonna ruin that opportunity and yeah. we'll lose the deal. They'll go to someone else. Yeah. So I stood firm and thank God I did because we did win the deal in Q1 the next year and it was a highly profitable, high margin deal. I didn't yeah. need to discount. Yeah. But because of the navel gazing that was going on and because of the self-centeredness and the self-orientation, yeah. <laughs> they said yeah. they must do it. It's old. I, I, could have, I could have driven that customer into the arms of our competitor. Like yeah. if, I'd gone, if I'd gone there and, and pushed, I would have pushed them away. And I think that's a great example of what we need more and more sales people to be able to do and have confidence in doing and also sales leaders yeah. in that having the having the courage to actually manage those internal stakeholder expectations and stand firm because as we talked about before, that customer, they still purchased and they probably purchased at a higher profitability rate than the company was willing to have in order to get that in in there. But I guarantee that that relationship would have benefited more longer term based on the strategy of you holding firm. That relationship went on for 10 plus years. There Even after I left, that relationship was still a really strong relationship for the client. So you're right. I wasn't going to push it. I'm glad I didn't. But yeah, I, I faced a lot of backlash internally because I wasn't. But, you know, I say all of this very flippantly, um, Darren, because you and I both know that that pressure comes all the way from the top, right? Yeah. In fact, it comes from the shareholders, ultimately. If you're a publicly listed company, you've got shareholder returns. You've got the board saying, we need to increase the share price. You've mm -hmm. got the CEO as the, the puppet often of the board, and he's just like, get the numbers, get the numbers, get the numbers. So you've got this tyranny of short-termism and, and top-down pressure that ultimately finds its way all the way to the front line, the salespeople. Yep. And the salespeople have to then deal somehow deal with the relationship fallout. Yes, yes. And the other thing with that is once once they have to play that game, they then have to deal with the explanation to the senior leaders as to why this customer left, right? And it's it's like they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, right? Because they get the internal chastise from the uh, from the organisation for not bringing in the numbers. Then when they bring in the number. We don't have the long-term value that we're delivering to the customer. What is happening to the NPS? It's now the salesperson's fault. You're thinking, really? It's it's really poor leadership, isn't it? And these these same old old outdated leaders that are still pushing like that that top-down sort of hierarchical um, command and control style leadership. What they don't realise is they're creating a culture that's the opposite of team. Like I've worked in lots of sales teams, Darren, and yeah. none of them have been teams. Yeah. Like they're not really sales teams. What they are is 
a collection of salespeople in territories fighting dog each dog against each other. Yes. And then probably they also have that internal league ladder where they can see all the salespeople and where they're currently sitting year to date, month to date. Yep. And the sales leaders say, we need to drive this internal competition because that will be motivating because everybody wants to be number one. Not, not with the younger generations. No. No, one wants, no one wants that stuff anymore. No. Which means the evolution of sales leadership has to continue to evolve as well. So yeah. um, we need to be a lot more educated on what, the psychology that sits behind the, the next generation. We need to continue to keep up to date with the psychology of how buyers buy, what's important to the marketplace. Um, and also, I guess, have the courage to have those internal conversations and be a better business person and say, you know what, we're going to deliver the results, but we're not going to deliver the results at the, uh, at the expense of short-termism to fit short-term bonuses. This is about the lifetime value of an organization. So if they think about like that customer you described me before that the organization had a 10-year, I guess, relationship, yeah. if they measured the, the revenue and the profitability over that 10 years, and then they look back and think, if only we had have actually executed what we should have done at the start because we were trying to get that short-term result, it would have been chalk and cheese. Oh, look, businesses... And business leaders leave so much money on the table or they, they shoot themselves in the foot so often with this outdated thinking about end of quarter or end of month. We've got to stop that. Yeah. The new world of sales leadership to me is all about, you know, creating employee-centred organisations. Um, Branson talks about it, doesn't he, where he says, your number one stakeholder is not your customer, it's your employees. Your employees yeah. look after your customers, so that should be your most important focus. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that that... Mindset of abundance, the collaboration, the empowerment, transparency and openness. This is what the younger generations expect. Yeah. And so that leads me to the question, because we haven't talked specifically about sales tribe. So um, for the people that don't know, and I'm sure there's not many people that don't know about Ukraine, particularly if they're on LinkedIn, um, sales tribe has been, has been around, correct me if I'm wrong, about seven, eight years now? Spot on. Yeah, seven, yep. coming up eight, coming up eight years. Cool. So I'd love to know what was the uh, what was the catalyst? What was that? Was there something that that happened? Was there like a bolt of lightning that came out of the sky and says, "Now's the time"? What was yeah, the, the there, driver there, for there, that? There literally was. So I I made the decision, rightly or wrongly, in 2012 to go back and do an MBA. I was 23 years into a sales career at that point, sales and sales leadership. And I realized that things were changing. Everything I'd learned in those 20 years was starting to change and I wasn't as effective as I used to be. So I thought buyer behavior is changing. That's what's driving this. So I went back specifically to do some study on buyer behavior. I did a research project. Okay. Long story short, 12 months of, of research going out talking to buyers, which then led to my, my two books that I've written on the topic. Yeah. I soon realized, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't... Um, Blind Freddy could see it coming, right? As more and more buyers get access to more and more information, the role of the salesperson is changing. I'm no longer needed to show up and be the information giver. They've already got the information, right? Yeah, yeah. So I could see back then, this is 10 years ago, I could see things were changing for salespeople and changing fast. So it was during the research phase of writing the book that I realized there's got to be an opportunity for business here. And that's when the idea for Sales Tribe was born. So I decided, rightly or wrongly, Darren, I decided that Sales Tribe would be a business that would upskill salespeople 
It's why we created the tribe, the community. So there's a community yep. element to what we do. Yeah. But we've we very quickly got dragged up into enterprise level opportunities to do modern sales training. So everything we do now is focused on digital first and data led selling. Yeah. I personally refuse to do any of the old fashioned ejection handling, closing techniques. We don't do any of that stuff. We just focus on what does selling in 2025 look like? Yes. How do you prepare yourself now to have the relationships that you need in two years from now? And so a lot of what we do is advisory and consulting around go-to-market planning and sales training that focuses on digital first. Yeah, got it. And it's interesting you say data-led because it's all about um, – because you would have heard consultative selling, insight selling. Um, we as salespeople need to be more educated and it's not that we have to know more than the, the buyer, but we need to know what's the context to the data that might make sense for the buyer that adds to a level of credibility in their eyes about you. Let, you've, just, you've just nailed it. Let me tell you something that was really interesting. Um, in all the research and interviews that I did with buyers, I spoke to procurement people, vendor management people, CEOs. I, I interviewed buyers. I said, tell okay. me what it's like for you. Yeah. I want to hear what it's like for you to engage with, you know, sometimes hundreds of salespeople at any given time. Yeah. Here are the four key findings from that research. Buyers said, Darren, they said, we expect the salesperson to know our business. Yep. You're not showing up anymore saying, so Darren, tell me about your business or, hey, what keeps you awake at night? There's the door. Yeah. Get out. There's the door. So first one was know our business. Show me you know me, right? Yeah. So you've done your research. You're showing up prepared. The second thing they all said, we want everything personalized to our context. Love exactly that. what you just said. You said about the context, it has to be personalized. The third thing these buyers all said to me was, we expect that the salesperson can teach us something that we can't find ourselves. So you've got to have some unique insights. Yeah. In fact, one of the buyers said to me, Graham, I haven't got five minutes for a coffee with some salesperson who can't teach me something I can't find myself on Google. <laughs> so that's the third thing. The fourth one, which was really interesting to me, they all said, Graham, we want partners in our business, not suppliers. Love it. So Take us on the long-term journey. Show us the long-term roadmap. And the key message here that I wrote about in the book was, don't just solve my current problem. Yeah. Anticipate my future needs as well. Yeah. And we can then evolve together in a partnership, yes. which means we're kind of in, in, entwined because our mutual success is based on the mutual, I guess, application, the giving and, and problem solving. Sales is no longer Tinder. It's Match.com. <laughs> It's funny when you're saying like the personalized context, it just reminds me of the the number of executive summaries I used to have to read and completely change in terms of tender responses. Where most, the most, name of oh, yeah. just <laughs> most most tender responses are terrible, let's be honest. Um you look at when you look at how generic most of them are. I mean, the moment a buyer starts to read something that sounds generic, it's like been, gone, haven't got time for it. Yeah, but also the number of executive summaries you read where the the su supplier mentions their name, their company name, 
like oh. for a factor of sometimes 10, 20 to 1. <laughs> um, same, same guy, uh, senior procurement guy inside Big Bank here in Australia. You'll love this one. I said to this particular person, um, so tell me what it's like for you to deal with, you know, all the salespeople you deal with. And he said, Graham, I'll be really honest with you. Yeah. And he used some very colourful language. I won't repeat it. But he said, Graham, salespeople are an effing joke. I said, oh, oh, really? He said, yeah, mate. He said, you all show up here, dress yeah. the same, sound the same, same business buzzwords, same PowerPoint slides. You all say you're the greatest. You, should, you all show us your logos. He said, it's just, it's all the same. Yeah. And he said, my team and I, he said, we invite vendors in for a bake-off where they'll invite three or four or five vendors in to pitch, right? Yeah. About yeah. He said, Graham, we sit round at the end of the day laughing about how bad it is. And he said, <laughs> but then but then, then the problem is, Darren, he said, then um, once we've stopped laughing, then our problem is we can't remember who said what because it's all the same. It's all the same. So how do we differentiate? <laughs> So the I, I went away with my tail between my legs, but I once I kind of um you know got over the, the the sort of the insult that I felt, I realized that actually I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of showing up and doing the same standard sort of presentation and you know effectively throwing the mud against the wall and seeing if something sticks. Exactly. And I think and I, I've got two hands in the air, right? I, I've been exactly the same and it now makes me cringe the number of meetings and presentations and pitches where, and it was almost like we were indoctrinated into the culture of the organization that we were with at the time, that that was the expectation. Yep. And so we didn't question that. Yep. And I think that now, especially moving into 2023 and 2024 and beyond, we need to have people who are prepared to stand up, who know what they, who first of all, know what they stand for, what's important to them, what they're there to do, but also have the courage to say, you know what, I'm not going to be the same as anybody, everybody else. If, if everybody else is doing the 15-page the PowerPoint deck with the beautiful, you know... Logo slide. Yeah, and it's it's all about us, then I'm going to completely do something different. In fact, I'm going to not going to have any PowerPoint whatsoever and say, hey, do you guys have a flip chart or do you guys have a whiteboard or right. let's just do something completely different because that's going to make it more memorable for that organization. Now, having said that, you still need to know your stuff, Right. Yeah. And you need to be educated and you need, as you talked about, you need to be able to bring something of value that they can't ordinarily find of their own accord. That is that is a differentiator. That's how you reach trusted advisor status quickly and put yourself yeah. out in front. And let's be clear, Darren, you and I know you've only got to get slightly in front of the next competitor and you're and you're in the box seat. That's but it. you know, here's the other thing that 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 I thought about, which just makes sense. With the constant turnover of sales staff, people moving around inside their industry. And all of us getting the same training, whether it's Miller-Hyman or Hoothwaite or Challenger or what, like eventually it all filters down to the same level. And, and, and yeah, everybody's showing up exactly the same way. So I, like you, mate, I, uh, I decided a while ago that I would be anything yeah. but the same. Like just be memorable somehow. Yes, that's it. And they'll, because I think we said it before, they won't, people won't necessarily remember what you said but they will remember how you made them feel. And it could be one word. It could be just the way you engage. It could be the questions you ask. It could be anything, right? But look to differentiate yourself. I had a boss that said to me once, I had a boss and I love this, good good bit of advice. He said, he who gets up on the whiteboard first wins. 
And I, I, I used to think, what's he talking about? But he's actually right. If you stand up on the whiteboard confidently and you start to whiteboard a diagram of some sort or, you know, to your point about the flip chart, whatever it is, yeah. you take control psychologically of the meeting and you're yes. seen as uh, someone who's got some credibility and some and some confidence, that That's goes it. a long way. It does. It does. Even though internally you might be absolutely shitting yourself. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> I've got this whiteboard marker in front of me. Now what am I going to use with this? What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. I'll start drawing some concentric circles. You know, I'll oh, draw absolutely. a diagram and try and fill it out somehow. On exactly. The <laughs> Just make up a model as we go. Yeah. So with with everything that you've been doing over the last few years, and I know you're talking before we press record, and I'm not going to preempt anything because I know you've got a big launch next year. But how do you, how are you looking into 2024? So we talked earlier about the fact that you think that you know 2024 and the future of selling is is still buoyant. It's still fantastic. It's probably the best time in history to be to be in sales. Um, what are you seeing? What are you predicting for for 2024 that that sales people, but also sales leaders can sort of grab hold of and and really utilize to take full advantage? Well, look, um, on the back of the pandemic, you know, McKinsey and KPMG and Harvard and all the world's analysts are now writing about how much things have changed. Um, McKinsey said there's a go-to-market revolution that's happening now. They did a big survey. You probably saw it 2022, back into 2022. So it's a, about a year old now, but 97% of sales leaders think that that upskilling or reskilling their their team is the top priority. So everybody's looking at, you know, we need new skills, we need a new, or I like to say, we need a new mindset, skill set, and tool set. Yeah. So everybody's looking at that. Um, and more than 50% of those sales leaders believe that their reps don't have the capabilities to succeed right now. So, you know, there's a hell of a lot of people. Now looking at what are the skills that are required moving forward. So for me, 2024 is, is going to be all about how can Sales Tribe and what we're doing with our new tech platform that, that, we'll, that we'll announce in the early part of next year, how can we start to put the power back in the hands of the salespeople yeah. and get them to truly understand everything that you and I have been talking about for the last half hour or more. Yeah. Um, it's about how do we how do we get them to start focusing on creating raving fans and delivering the most delightful buying experience we possibly can at each and every touch point and focus less on those self-serving KPIs and metrics that we've we've been used to chasing, right? If we, if we can learn to park all of that and just focus on delighting the buyer, as you said, Darren, everything else takes care of itself. It does. It does. And and when you say that. Doesn't it sound so fundamental, so based on common sense? And when you think about most successful enterprises, they actually, at their core, that's what they do. Yeah, They solve a problem and they put themselves in the shoes of their buyers and their customers and they try to create value that instills a level of creativity around this person is a raving fan of me. Well, this is fan. This is a raving fan of my organisation. It's it's that simple, mate. And listen, I'm a I'm a simple farm boy who always likes to break things down to to the basics. And you know, I think in particularly in the world of high tech, gosh, the selling that we do in high tech, or even you know, most businesses now, every business is a digital business. But we overcomplicate everything, and we don't yeah, need yeah. to. No. If we, if we just as sales leaders, if we just get our teams to realise. All I have to really do is just make sure that every single touch point creates that delightful engagement. Yeah. 
then the rest takes care of itself. And if you just did that, if we just and we'll, we might we might wrap up on this, right? If yeah. you just did that, rather than trying to look for the the differentiation about a product or a service, that in itself would differentiate you against all of your competition because what they're trying to do is they're trying to impress and convince, and they're all as you said it before, they're all using the same cookie cutter approach, mm-hmm. saying the same things, using the same big big buzzwords. If you just did that and create that raving fan, you will leave an indelible mark and an impression that says, you know what, this is an organization and these are the people that I want to continue to do business with and build relationships with. Yeah, the, exactly right. The, the mental barometer that I use is if I was sitting in the buyer's shoes right now, how would I feel about what's happening? Yeah. And if that if that's how you think about, you know, the way you engage or the way you execute a sale, everything will start to fall into place. Yeah. The moment you start demonstrating to your buyer that your your orientation is about you and your numbers, you're dead. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Mate, this is this has been two years in the making. It's just been absolutely, it's like nearly an hour has gone like that. So- I can um, talk all day about this stuff, mate. I know, and we're going to have to come back because what, what I'd love to do is uh, as you launch into 2024 with your tech, um, your tech stack, I'd love to- um, uh, have you back on and we'll talk a bit more about that. But um, when last, any last words of wisdom for people listening to this as they wrap up 2023 and start the planning phase for 2024? No, look, I'll just borrow from um, Brian Halligan. I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, just the mindset now, um, whether you're a leader or a salesperson, the mindset has to be create value before you try to extract value. I love that. And I, I live my life by that now. It's like, it's the go giver. It's the, you know, you get, you give before you get all that kind of stuff. So yeah, just focus on selling that way and you can't go wrong. I don't think. Love it. Love it, mate. Absolute pleasure. It's um, we've known each other a long time. So it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, we're kindred spirits, right? So we do, we do, we're, we're, we're very much on the same page. So this has been a phenomenal conversation. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, people who are wanting to know more about Sales Tribe and also connect with you, Graham, where's the best place for them to do that? Oh, good old LinkedIn for me, Darren. Just hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah, most of my most of my engagement happens there. It's the uh, it's the business platform. It's not to put too fine a point on it, but LinkedIn changed my life. Like the moment I realised, wow, there's a big wide audience here. There's a billion users on that platform now. So yeah, yeah. LinkedIn is the answer. Brilliant, love it. Mate, um, from me to you, thank you so much. Have a very Merry Christmas and um, May 2024 for you be absolutely exceptional, which I know it's going to be. Thanks for having me, Darren. Great to talk. Good to you, mate. All the best. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.